This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Again, pleasure to be with you all. Uh, I've had a great week this first time ever in Puerto Rico. My wife and I, she left to go back to New York on Thursday, but I have a few more days here, and uh, we're grateful for the hospitality that we've received while here. Why don't you stand while I read this passage from John's Gospel. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. Have a seat. You know, it's not strange, I think, that we take an interest in people's last words, the things they say before they leave this world. Uh, sometimes, of course, they're rather anticlimactic. There's not much to them. Other times, they are chock-filled with meaning, profound. They tell us what mattered to the person and what was important to them and maybe even pass on some important things to us. And what we want to do this morning is look at some of Jesus's last words, those things that he said after he was raised from the dead but before he ascended. And of course, Jesus' last words are a little unlike anyone else's last words in the history of our planet. Because the Christian belief is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead never to die again, and that he had then ascended to heaven. And therefore, these words inherently have to be chock-filled with import, with significance. And, uh, and so they are. Uh, and you know, on the one hand, we need to recognize that his words uh, especially after his uh, resurrection, are generally tied to a sense of meaning and purpose. And how could they not be? Because if this cataclysmic event, the resurrection, has taken place, that would seem to absolutely change everything. And so it does. And recognize this, either Easter and the resurrection is a hoax just there to get the gullible, or it is everything and your whole life deserves to be centered around it. Your whole life deserves to be shaped around it. It ought to inform and influence everything you think and do. And so in that context, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If, anyone's, uh, if anyone's sins are forgiven, uh, I'm sorry, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus, in these terse sentences, is giving us a new sense of purpose, a new sense of mission, a new sense of calling, a new way of thinking about our lives in light of his resurrection. And so let's spend some time reflecting on them, looking at, first of all, what is the essence of that purpose? Because after all, it's hard, no matter what your belief system is, to live a meaningful life if you don't have a profound sense of purpose. But how much more important it is to have a purpose that is in keeping with the way God has made the world. And so what we want to do, again, is look at the essence of this purpose, the means of accomplishing it, what we're called to do, and then how we're empowered to carry out this purpose. All these things are in the passage. So 
Here are the disciples. They're in a room that's locked. Uh, it is uh, the morning in which the resurrection has taken place. And um, the first words that Jesus speaks to them, not once but twice, is peace be with you. And probably if anyone was in the need of peace, it was the disciples. They had just seen this one who they had followed and put their trust in and come to believe that was the Messiah. They saw him sort of mercilessly, mercilessly beaten. They saw him uh, sort of heinously executed, and they saw his broken body being put in a tomb. And so if anyone was in the need for peace, it was them. Uh, they were undoubtedly feeling anxiety. They were feeling sadness, grief, fear. All those things are there. And then this astonishing news comes to them earlier in the day. Jesus is alive, Mary says, and I've seen him. And I don't know what exactly that would have provoked in them when they first heard it, but probably not necessarily peace either. Maybe some confusion, maybe some bewilderment. And then here they are in a locked room, and we're told that Jesus somehow shows up in this locked room. And there they experience on the one hand, as the text says, gladness, but probably not that alone. <laughs> probably like, what is going on exactly here? What are we to make of all of this? And to that context, Jesus says, peace be with you. Again, not once, but twice. And as he does it, he rather oddly shows him sort of the marks of violence on his body, his pierced hands, his torn side. What was he saying when he said, peace be with you? Was he simply saying, hey, calm down, everything's going to be all right? Probably not, <laughs> particularly in light of the fact that he's showing them his hands and his side. I think he's saying something far more profound to them because this word peace that Jesus would have uttered would have immediately brought to the mind of his disciples the great Hebrew word shalom, which is uh, not just a, sort of a state of mind or an emotional state. It's something that pointed to, well, the great hope of God's people, that one day this broken, tattered creation would be made whole again. And Jesus is essentially saying, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection, that is exactly what has taken place. The rescue, the redemption, the flourishing of creation has now been brought back into the world. And that through my giving myself up on the cross, uh, things are going to be different now. You see, if our first parents by their actions, by their turning against God and engaging in idolatry, had essentially engaged in the vandalism of shalom, which is a great way to think about sin. It is the vandalizing of God's good purposes in the world. Jesus now undoes that. He turns an upside-down world right side up again. Peace be with you. You know, when Jesus first came on the scene in Mark's gospel, his first words are, the kingdom of God is, uh, is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And now Jesus is essentially saying, it's no longer at hand. <laughs> Peace be with you. The kingdom is here. Not fully, but genuinely. Things are different now. Let's think about that a little bit more. You see, when Jesus shows himself to the disciples, it's not simply a word to us that says, Jesus is alive and you can have a relationship with him, though it certainly is that. And when he says, peace be with you, he's not simply saying, 
hey, your sins are forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. Though that's nothing to sneeze at either, and that's true as well. But again, he's saying something far more profound. He's saying everything has changed now. What has happened? The new creation has been inaugurated. Uh, no longer is the God of this age in charge of the world and said, through my life, my death, my resurrection, I hung, hung up a sign on the world. And you know what the sign reads? Under new management. <laughs> That's what God has done in Christ, is he's put our world under new management. Now, that has vast implications for our lives. But let's think a little bit more about how John gets this across. The crucifixion, of course, took place on a Friday. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. And that was in the Hebrew way of thinking, the Jewish way of thinking, it was the sixth day of the week. And when God first created the world, on that sixth day, he finished creating. It is finished. And on the seventh day, he rests. Well, we get to Passion Week with Jesus. And on the sixth day, of course, he dies on the cross. But what does he utter on the cross? It is finished. The work of redemption has now been profoundly completed. And then there's the seventh day, the day of rest. And then John, on a number of occasions in this text, and does in our passage before us, points out it was the first day of the week. Why does he do that? Well, on the one hand, of course, it was historically true. But I want to suggest to you, as many theologians have pointed out, it was probably John's way of saying, yes, it's the first day of the first week of the new creation. <laughs> that now things have been radically altered in the world. And it's probably no, it's not probably incidental that Mary, when she first meets Jesus in the garden that morning after he was raised from the tomb, mistakes him as a gardener. Because just as Adam and Eve in the Old Testament passage that was read were the first gardeners of creation, Jesus becomes the first and foundational gardener of the new creation. And then he invites us to participate with him in this. He isn't merely saying, as he shows himself to the disciples, hey, I'm raised from the dead so you can go to heaven. Actually, that doesn't come up in the passage at all. Essentially, he says, hey, I am raised from the dead. The new creation has begun, and now you need to get busy. <laughs> you need to get busy living out the new creation in everything you say and do. That's the reality in which we live. We see it by faith, not by sight, but we see it all the same. And so when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's referring again to this rich Hebrew notion of the, the flourishing of everything, a new flourishing for our relationship with God, peace be with you, a new flourishing of our relationships with one another that are often marked, unfortunately, not by peace, but by alienation. And now he's saying, no, peace be with you, not simply the absence of hostility, the presence of delight, true enjoyment of each other. Peace be with you. Peace inside your own skin, where we often don't feel peace. And peace with the whole created world. This is not a hostile place. This is God's world. And it's not incidental to the life you live as a human being. Actually, this is the way it was designed, that you please God and live a life of faithfulness as an embodied person in God's beautiful creation. And Jesus is saying, all that has changed through what I've done. Peace be with you. Because I've been sacrificed, there is now no need for any further sacrifices. There's nothing you have to do. It comes to you as a gift because of what I have done. Though you were alienated, you've been brought near. 
Peace be, you, be with you, because I was condemned as a criminal in your place. There is now, from now on, not just now at this no moment, but from now on, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Peace be with you, because I took on the curse on the cross. The curse is removed both from you and from creation as a whole. And now you are called to be instruments of that peace yourself instruments of the new creation. I want to say this carefully, but it's important to say all the same. The church's task is not to transform society or change the world. What is the church's task? It is to witness with both our lips and our lives to the new creation that has been inaugurated by Jesus. That becomes the crucial task that we are called to do. Now listen, when you do that beautifully and well, you will change the world. And whenever the world is changed, we ought to rejoice in that. We ought to long for the world to be changed, to see violence and racism and uh, uh, broken relationships and grief. We should long to see all those things healed. It ought to bring great delight to our souls. We should want that. But we, don't want, to make sure, we want to make sure we don't put the cart before the horse. Christianity is not a means to some greater end, changing the world. No, eventually... Again, God will transform this entire world. But your primary task here and now is to witness to the new creation that has been inaugurated in Jesus, to be able to say with your lips and your lives to others what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do. That is the unique thing that the church has to offer the world. There are other organizations that work at changing the world. We can be grateful for them. And again, we should be grateful when our efforts to testify to the new creation in Jesus change the world as well. But we dare not lose sight of our primary task. It's the unique thing that we have to offer as the people of God. We want people to know that they were made by God and for God. That, that is what is crucial if they are to live life well, if they are to live life fully. So if we fail in this, will have let people down in the most fundamental way. So the essence of our purpose witnesses to the new creation. Everything is different now. But how do we carry it out? Well, Jesus puts it simply like this. Follow me. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus' ways in the world are the pattern that we are to imitate. We are to be his copycats. <laughs> we are to do as he has done. Ellen, what did Jesus do? Well, there's lots of ways to put it, of course. But uh, Peter, as he's summarizing Jesus' life in the book of Acts, puts it like this. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all those who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. He went around doing good and healing all those who are under the power of the devil. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What does that look like in our lives? Well, doing good is simply giving yourself over to uh, caring for others so that they flourish as God intended them to flourish, so that they can be the people that God intends them to be, so that others can become their true selves. And that looks like so many things, right? It means serving others. It means coming alongside the grieving, coming alongside the brokenhearted, binding up the wounds of others. It means fighting oppression. It means working to see the naked clothed and making sure that the hungry are filled. All those things 
our ways of doing good. And uh, yet, if we're honest with ourselves, as Paul warns us, it's easy to grow weary <laughs> in doing good, right? It's uh, very easy to say, ah, this doesn't feel like I'm making much of a difference, and then just turn inward and move to just taking care of ourselves. And that's why Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. No, you need, to, you need to stick to it. What will enable us to do that? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. The first is actually seeing the infinite value and worth of every person you interact with. You know, whether they are someone you're just passing in the street, someone who is uh, being a waiter at a restaurant that you're going to, uh, or a family member. <laughs> uh, every person is of infinite value and worth. Now, I don't have many possessions that matter that much to me. I guess I'm grateful for that, but I do have a couple. Uh, and one is the guitar, a, a Guild D40 that I had custom built when I was a 19-year-old. And so it's now 40-some years old. And uh, it is a beautiful instrument. And um, I, I, uh, I let my grandkids play it a little bit, but only with when pop-ups around, <laughs> because it's something that is precious to me, and I protect it. Uh, and if I do that for that object, what I need to recognize is see that each human being has that same kind of value to God. And so if we are going to not grow weary in doing good, one of the things is to cultivate that sense of the infinite worth and value of people around us. That becomes crucial. But then the second thing we need to do is having cultivated that sense of others' worth and value is to work on developing empathy, of being able to stand in their shoes, of sort of seeing what they need. I don't know if you've seen the show Ted Lasso on um, uh, Apple TV. I can't commend it to you highly enough, but one of the great things about Ted Lasso is he refuses to be used, but he is loved through and through. He's certainly a Christ figure as you watch the show. Uh, and people mistake him as sort of a rube, not knowing much, but he knows deeply. And he knows, actually, human beings. He knows the human condition. And he knows what various people need to hear because he sort of has stood in their shoes. And he says just the right thing to each of them that will encourage them, that will build them up, that will help them in their journey. He does that only because he is profoundly empathetic. <laughs> and then that empathy leads him to action in his life. If we're going to keep on doing good, we need to cultivate those same things in our lives. And don't forget this, that your 40-hour a week or however many hours a week you work job is also part of your doing good. That's not just simply a means by which you earn money, though it's that, I suppose, certainly. But it is also always meant to be, always was meant to be, sort of your vocation out of which you serve God and serve others. It always is meant to be a way that you love people, whether you're in finance, whether you're in the service industry, whether you're in security, whether you're in the arts. Everything we do is not meant to be done for our glory, but for God's glory and for the love and the service of other people. So recognize that this doing good isn't just uh, relegated to small areas of your life. It encompasses everything you do from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. So we're called to do good. But we're also called, according to the pattern of Jesus, to free those who are under the power of the devil. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I want to suggest to you it doesn't mean primarily curing people of their maladies and sicknesses. No, you see, we're most under the power of the devil when what? When we're alienated from God, when we believe lies that suggest 
uh, there is no God or we're not dependent on God or we weren't made by God and for God. And so our calling is uh, to free people from the power of the devil by announcing the good news to them, by letting them know that Jesus is the one who has given himself uh, for us in order that a friendship with God might be established. And you see, it doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful a person is, if they don't know God, according to the scriptures, they're in a sad situation. It's impossible to be your true self apart from knowing God. Now, you can only be that when you start to know God's love is better than life. It's better to be one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere, that his love is better than when new grain and wine abound. You see, our relationship with God is meant to be substantive. <laughs> Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the living water. And so we go to others knowing that not only is the gospel the truth of God, but it's riches for everyone who believes it. And so we dare not hold that back. It's how we free power people from the power of the devil. And then look at this remarkable statement of Jesus to his followers. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You look at that and you say, that sounds a little too heady of a task for me. Who would sign up for that? If I forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven. If I don't, they're not forgiven. Uh, what's going on here? Well, I don't think he's saying that we have the power or the authority in and of ourselves to forgive sins. But he is saying that we are instruments of God's forgiveness. You know, in the same way that certain people develop the vaccines that we're all taking now, but other people go out and administer those vaccines, Jesus has accomplished forgiveness, but we know now go out and administer that forgiveness. And so we invite others to know the God who has made them. We tell them of the message of full and free forgiveness from guilt and sin. And then when they come into the church and they make their profession, we baptize them. That is one of the signs that God has given to the church that we administer, and it's a way of saying, we acknowledge that you are a forgiven person in our midst. In that sense, as we forgive, they are forgiven. On the other hand, when we announce the message of the gospel and warn people of the dangers of turning from the God who made them, and yet they still reject that message, we are in a profound sense withholding forgiveness from them. You see, according to the Bible, the church and what it does matters. We're not just a human community. We are that, of course, and we're broken in more ways than I can count, and I'm broken in more ways than I can count, but we all the same are the community of the new creation who have an important task to carry out in the world. And then finally, we ask ourselves, well, how do we carry that out? And the answer is, well, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes on his people, says, receive my spirit. In other words, we do this with a profound sense of dependence on God. And you see, there's two mistakes we make as the people of God as we go out into the world. One is arrogance. Um, we actually create a we-them mentality between us and the people around us. Uh, we see us as having our lives together in some sense. We move out into the world in a spirit of triumphalism rather than a spirit of humility. And all that is quite ugly. But when we have the spirit on us, we recognize that, well, even though I know who loves me, I'm not that much less lost. And we do it with the spirit of humility, knowing that uh, we aren't up to the task. We're not competent. We're not adequate. But through us, 
Well, God makes us, or through the Spirit, God makes us competent and adequate. So on the one hand, we need to avoid arrogance because that's ugly. On the other hand, we have to avoid cowardice, right, of not wanting to be sort of associated with Jesus for fear that might damage our reputation or might make people look down on us. And I, I certainly struggle with that from time to time. I think, you know, I don't want people to think I'm like, uh, I've checked my brain at the door and I believe crazy things. And let's face it, there's a lot of people who think the things that Christians believe are beyond the pale. <laughs> they look at us and say, how could you possibly believe that? And yet we're told that the spirit that's given to us is not a spirit of timidity. It's not a spirit of fear. Uh, it's one in which we experience God's love poured out in our hearts by that spirit, and therefore we want others to get in on it. So we dare not do this on our own power. We need the spirit. And how do you get the spirit? How do you experience that? Well, simply by spending time with Jesus. <laughs> because you see, all of us have had the experience of being with another person that was so rich that you come away from it and you say, wow, I'm full. <laughs> that was just so great. That was so filling to be in that person's presence. And so it is. Our time with Jesus is meant to be of such a quality that we come away filled. <laughs> that is how God fills us with the Spirit, filling us with uh, the presence of Jesus, the one on whom the Spirit had rested. So there you have it, friends, our purpose. We understand where this world is heading. New creation has begun. One day it will be brought to completion. We look for the culmination of all this. And Jesus' resurrection was the first and the foundational act of new creation. And now we are called to get busy, not only experiencing it ourselves. After all, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ in 1 Corinthians, he, she is a new creation and are part of a new creation. And it's to impact everything that we do. Christ is our life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Is that your purpose? Jesus would have it be. And if God in his mercy continues to revive us, and I'm sure he will, well, it will be our purpose as well. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. A life chock-filled with meaning and purpose and joy. Let's pray. God, thanks for the scriptures. Thank you for these particular last words of Jesus. Uh, Lord, would they be the words that dominate our lives, that shape how we live in the world? We don't do it well, Lord. Uh, we fail uh, so often. We think that uh, you are there just to help us with our agenda rather than recognizing that in Jesus we've been given a whole new agenda. And yet that agenda, Lord, gives life. Would you help us uh, to embrace it fully? and to the know, know the joy of living in it. We ask this for Jesus' sake.